Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh. So alhamdulillah today we are at uh, day 19 and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has allowed us to discuss quite a few different things. We'll start off with a bit of recitation from the Quran insha'Allah. A'udhu billahi minash shaytanir rajeem bismillahir rahmanir rahim. Utlu ma uhiya ilayka minal kitabi wa aqimis salah. إِنَّ الصَّلَاةَ تَنْهَا عَنِ الْفَحْشَاءِ وَالْمُنْكَرُ وَلَذِكْرُ اللَّهِ أَكْبَرُ وَاللَّهُ يَعْلَمُ مَا تَصْنَعُونَ وَلَا تُجَادِلُوا أَهْلَ الْكِتَابِ إِلَّا بِالَّتِي هِيَ أَحْسَنُ إِلَّا الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا مِنْهُمْ وَقُولُوا آمَنَّا بِالَّذِي أُنْزِلَ إِلَيْنَا وَأُنْزِلَ إِلَيْكُمْ وَإِلَاهُنَا وَإِلَاهُكُمْ وَاحِدٌ وَنَحْنُ لَهُ مُسْلِمُونَ صدق الله العظيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على المبعوث رحمة للعالمين وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا إلى يوم الدين أما بعد So after the last two days of the really complicated discussions about the seven um, modes of reading, the seven styles of reading and the various different qiraat, we move on to more historical kind of discussion. No, that was actually historical as well, but this is more about the compilation of the Qur'an, how the Qur'an has reached us the way it has, and all the developments that uh, took place in that regard, how it was put together, especially since in the beginning there's almost like an understanding uh, in some quarters that... Uh, and there are some narrations about this as well that the Prophet ﷺ may have prohibited for the Qur'an to even be written in some cases as has been, uh, as you will hear in some quarters. So we're going to inshallah discuss all of that and tell you about the truth of the matter and talk about how exactly the, the laborious work that was undertaken to get the, the Qur'an absolutely uh, authenticated in the way as has been revealed by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to the Prophet ﷺ. So firstly, let us start off uh, with the verse of the Qur'an where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, إِنَّ عَلَيْنَا جَمْعَهُ وَقُرْآنَ It is our responsibility to bring it together, to compile it together, have it recited. That's the responsibility of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, we've already discussed that in a bit of detail before. How it was compiled together, There's uh, people have discuss this subject it's mentioned in books of hadith and so on as well and there's actually certain books which are written specifically on the topic for example ibn abi dawud wrote al-masahif uh, the mushafs you know the the copies of the quran there's another book called al-masahif again by uh, ibn ashta and then there's al-intisar li naql al-quran you can say discussing and defending the transmission of the quran process by none other than the great a Quranic scholar, Aqidah scholar, you know, big name in, in regards to Quranic studies is uh, the Qadi, the Imam Abu Bakr, Ibn Tayyib al-Baqillani, who died in 403 Hijri. And then you've got Imam al-Sayrafi has written another book called Nukatul Intisar li Naqli al-Quran. What we're going to do today is we're going to discuss, I said one of the, one of the most useful books in that regard nowadays is, is this one, which has recently been republished by Torah. And it discusses all of these aspects in great detail, uh, showing manuscript copies, parchment copies, 
you know, where necessary and so on. It's really good and dealing with a lot of the Orientalist uh, arguments or objections and things like that. And Sheikh Mustafa al-Adhaim, may Allah have mercy on him, has done a really, really wonderful job in that regard. Uh, I found it useful as well uh, while preparing for this class as well. So, the Quran was preserved in primarily two ways. Right? One is, as the names indicate, one was in writing and the other one was in the hearts. Right? One was in writing and the other one was in the hearts. So, firstly, the Prophet ﷺ himself had emphasized the aspects of reciting the Quran and memorizing the Quran. Uh, he himself obviously had memorized the Quran and he used to recite the Quran, big, uh, you know, large portions of the Quran in his night prayers especially. And then of course in the daily prayers he would recite it and people would re listen to that as well. In fact, he is known to, in some rak'ats of especially his night prayers, he's known to have read several of the tiwal, right? Several of the long surahs. Ibn Abbas anhu says that the Prophet especially in Ramadan, Prophet used to be extremely generous um, with, uh, extremely generous, generally anyway, the Prophet was a generous individual, but in Ramadan he was the most generous. The reason he was most generous in Ramadan, he says, is because Jibreel used to have a special sitting meeting with him every night in Ramadan until it ended. So every night of Ramadan, Jibreel used to be with the Prophet and they used to go over the Quran that had been revealed until then. Now, so when the Prophet used to meet with Jibreel, that used to make him really excited. He was very generous. So whenever he would meet with Jibreel, that's when he would be even more generous. That's why in Ramadan he was more generous than even other times. Imam Bukhari has related this. Then you've got another hadith that Imam Bukhari has related as well, which is from Abu Hurairah anhu, that the Prophet um, used to have the Quran presented upon him by Jibreel alayhi uh, salam once every year, you know, the entire amount that had been revealed until then. And then in the year that he passed away, it makes it very clear, فَعُرِضَ عَلَيْهِ marratain. It was then presented to him twice in the final year of his life. And there, وَكَانَ يَعْتَكِفُ كُلَّ عَامٍ عَشَرًا So every year, the Prophet ﷺ used to make i'tikaf, last 10 days of Ramadan. But in this last year of his life, the Prophet ﷺ made i'tikaf for, for 20 days, for two tens, uh, and that's when it was also presented to him twice. So it looks like his i'tikaf, uh, in his i'tikaf, in his spiritual retreat, the Quran would be uh, presented to him and they would revise it. They would revise it and review it like that. Now let's move on. That, that's the Prophet's efforts, personal efforts himself. Now let's move on to the Sahaba. Now, mashallah, the Sahaba, they had it ingrained in them from before that they need to memorize as much of the Quran as possible. And they would make a lot of effort to do that and to try to get it completely right. And, you know, for them, it was as it was being revealed over the 23 years, you know, those who were there from the beginning, they would try to memorize and learn it as much as possible. Their thing was not just memorizing, it's just not called memorization. They would actually be uh, understanding it, implementing it, practicing it, discussing it. Now, why, uh, you know, the, the, the reasons why this uh, helped, uh, what, um, or rather, there were several reasons that helped them a lot in this regard. One of them was that, mashallah, they had really good memory. So in those days, people generally had a good memory because it was an oral tradition and they had, you know, the brain used to be used to memorize things as opposed to, 
you know, the hand or the phone to write something, which we would call extended memory today. Today, say like, what's your phone number here? Let me just put it in my phone. Don't memorize phone numbers anymore. People used to, 20 years ago, memorize phone numbers. But today, you know, many people don't even know their wife's phone, you know, their wife's phone number. So that was one of the things that they had good memories in those days. Number two, because the Quran came down in uh, portion by portion, it was obviously easy to memorize. It wasn't like, hey, this whole big, what a momentous task. You know, the, the bit by bit, and they were able to, mashallah, memorize it. Number three, these are some really more interesting. I've never thought about it this way. I mean, the first two I obviously knew, but the number three, what I found was that it was made binding and obligatory to recite Quran in prayer, right? And that is one of the amazing ways of, uh, that is one of the amazing methods by which the Quran uh, was preserved. That if you're making it obligatory for people, the Muslims all over, hundreds of thousands and millions of Muslims to memorize at least parts of the Quran, right? That they're going, they, they have to pray, uh, they have to uh, use when they're praying, aside from Surah Al-Fatiha, then they're going to memorize. Now, yes, there's going to be quite a, probably a significant chunk that will just memorize the last 10 surahs of the Quran or something, the small surahs or certain portions. But then there's going to be others who are going to memorize more. Not everybody's like, you know, that they, they all, always read Kul huwallahu ahadan kul yayul kafirin kul autubi rabbifa kul autubi rabbin nas in their salat. They actually read a lot of other portions. For example, I know one imam in London who I think in Salatul Isha, I think it is, or maybe Salatul Fajr, I'm not sure. In one of the two prayers or both prayers, he starts off from the beginning of the Quran and he does the whole Quran in, in the congregation, you know, bit by bit, slowly, slowly, every day he'll read, mashallah. And there's a lot of other people who'll do this throughout. There's, uh, there's scholars uh, I, I know of who would read 10 Jews a day, right? 10 Jews a day, just in their Nafil prayers, in their optional prayers, in their Sunnah prayers. They would cover many, many Jews. And there's others who obviously complete two Jews a day, three Jews a day, and they'll complete the Quran, you know, in seven days or whatever the case is. So the third, uh, the, the third point was that qira'a of the Quran was necessary in the prayer. Number four it is binding to practice upon the Quran, to um, practice one's life according to the Quran, implement. So that was another reason why you had to have the Quran. So you see, what's really interesting, what the picture is emerging here is that the Quran was not just some book that was revealed as this glorious book, right? As this, uh, you know, respectable book, revered book, and then you just kind of leave it on the side, just have it for barakah in your house or something like that. That was not the purpose of it. The purpose of it was it for it to be used, that you memorize it, you, le you, you practiced upon it. Number five... The Prophet ﷺ, outside of prayer and so on, encouraged the recitation of the Qur'an. And there's huge rewards that were promised for the recitation, just purely the recitation of the Qur'an, not even understanding it. That was all additional uh, rewards. And these people at that time, the first initial uh, group of Muslims there, they were mostly ummis, which means unlettered. They did not know how to formally read and write. You know, that was more of an oral tradition, as I said. So how are they going to read the Quran often? Right? The only way they're going to do it is they're going to memorize it. So that encouraged a lot of the Sahaba of that time to memorize the Quran, maybe even the women, because the only way they're going to be able to get more reward, you know, beyond uh, reading Surah Al-Fatiha and the last 10 surahs of the Quran, is that they memorize more of the Quran. So, for example, there's a hadith of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, which I'm sure most of you have probably heard. He said, I heard the Prophet ﷺ saying, whoever recites one letter of the Book of Allah, for him he gets one uh, 
good deed because of it. And each good deed is um, uh, each good deed is equivalent to ten multiples of it. Right? So ten to like it. So for every letter you're get, you're getting ten ten rewards. And then the Prophet clarified very clearly, he says, I don't say that Alif Lam Meme is one letter. Alif Lam Meme is not one letter. Alif is one letter, Lam is one letter, and Meme is another letter. So just for reading Alif Lam Meme, I just got 30 rewards, inshaAllah. Imam Bukhari has transmitted this. Number six, the Prophet made a special effort to make sure that the Sahaba study the Quran, to teach them the Quran, essentially. And the Prophet was their teacher. I mean, who better than the Prophet ﷺ as their teacher? He, they would learn the, the Qur'an from him. And the Prophet ﷺ was their shaykh. Now, the way the people around him, they would obviously come to his gatherings and they would be learning directly. But what about the people in the outlying areas, other vicinities, other towns, and people in distant places? So, the way this would work is that whenever a group of people from a distant area would become Muslim, like a tribe would become a Muslim. The Prophet ﷺ would, teach, uh, would, would send. They didn't have any physical copies of the Qur'an at that time, you know, all compiled together in form. No, they didn't have any of that. So what he would do is that he would actually send a Qari. He would send a Qari, a re reciter of the Qur'an. Now, in those days, the Qari, the reciter, was a hafiz of the Qur'an because he had to be. What else was he going to read from? Right, he had to have memorized it. So the Prophet so in those days they didn't generally use the word hufad as much. Hufad's plural of hafiz, right, which means memorizer. They 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 use the word qari or qurra, right, generally, and that meant they'd memorize the Quran as well. And they were good reciters of the Quran along with memorizing it. So he would send them as teachers. Every time there would be somebody, a new tribe or whatever, and they would be in a far distant area, he would say, Okay, you go and that is why there's eventually a story that's related about on one occasion he sent 70, right? Uh, 70 Qurra, 70 good reciters with uh, th this huge, uh, some, some tribes and so on. And there was a treachery that was committed and they were all killed. And that was a really, really heartbreaking moment for the Muslims. And this is, you know, you'll find this in Bukhari and Muslim. So that is what the Prophet would do. He would actually make sure that people learnt the Quran by sending people. When you look at when you scour the hadith literature, you're going to find some names that pop up more than others. Now, this does not mean that they were the only people that knew the Quran or that were experts in the Quran. There were many experts in the Quran, but these people, for some reason or the other, they they've been mentioned and it's come down to us. For example, it's related from Masruq ibn al-Ajda al-Tabi'i. He says that Abdullah ibn Amr once mentioned Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu. Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As radiyallahu anhu was probably younger, right? He remembered, he once mentioned Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu. And he said, لا أزال أحبه You know, I just can't stop loving him. I just love him to bits. Because I have heard the Prophet sallallahu say about Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, خُذُ الْقُرْآنَ مِنْ You should take your Qur'an from these four people. So you see, that's, as I said, the specific narrations where you have certain names. Now, the Prophet ﷺ is telling him that you should take the Quran from four individuals Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Salim, Mu'adh, and Ubay ibn Ka'ab. Right? So, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Salim, who? Mawla Abi Hudayfa, and Mu'adh ibn Jabal, and Ubay ibn Ka'ab. Right? And Imam Bukhari has transmitted this. 
So my son Salim is getting a bit excited that his name is mentioned there. And may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make him a teacher of the Quran as well. And may Allah allow all of our uh, children to learn and teach the Quran as well. So Abdullah ibn Masood, Salim, Mu'adh and Ubay ibn Ka'ab. Now these four are mentioned here. That doesn't mean the Prophet ﷺ, you can't learn it from anybody else. This was one individual, maybe these people he had full access to. So that's why he said these people. So don't ever think that only these people knew the Quran. Likewise, you have another hadith from Qatada radiallahu anhu, who says that once I asked Anas ibn Malik radiallahu anhu, that who are the people that compile the Quran or gather the Quran, meaning who'd memorize the Quran in the time of the Prophet He said, four of them, all of them from the Ansar, Ubay ibn Ka'ab, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, Zayd ibn Thabit, and Abu Zayd. So you have another word here. You have another name here. He doesn't mention Abdullah ibn Masood. He says, Ubay ibn Ka'ab, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, Zayd ibn Thabit, and Abu Zayd. He obviously mentioned these four because they were probably what came to his mind at that point or they were really prominent in his mind at that time. So this does not mean though that uh, they're the only people that knew the Quran and nobody else knew it. Just, just trying to explain that. Among the other sources that we see, we see seven names that generally come about who are known to have been teachers of the Quran, right? Locally as well. That's Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anh. Ali ibn Abi Talib, Ubay ibn Ka'ab, Zayd ibn Thabit, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anh, Abu Darda, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari. Now these are very famous, everybody knows these, none of these are obscure uh, Sahaba. And you'll find mention of these people in the sources, right? So Imam Suyuti has mentioned these seven, and there were obviously a lot of others who were ulama of the Quran. Now these people became known as the scholars of the Quran as well. Imam Abu Qasim, sorry, Imam Abu Ubaid Al Qasim ibn Salam, in his book on Kitab al Qiraat, right, which he wrote himself, the book of the recitations, he says that Al Qurra'u in Ashabi Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa he discusses the memorizers of the Quran during the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, and he mentions a number of Muhajireen in there. So, in the Muhajireen, among the migrators, he mentions the four Khulafa, right, so Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali radiallahu anhum. Talha ibn Ubaidillah, count these four, five, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Hudayfa ibn al-Yaman, and Salim Mawla Abi Hudayfa, Abu Huraira, Abdullah ibn Sa'ib, and the four, and the Abadila, right? The Abadila, this is a plural of Abdullah, right? The, the Abd, so they call him the Abadila, the, the famous four Abadila, the famous four Abdullahs. Who are they? Abdullah ibn Umar, Abdullah ibn Abbas, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn al-As, Abdullah ibn Zubair. So he mentions all of these four and he adds Aisha, Hafsa and Umm Salama. So he's got women in there as well. So they're in there as well. So it wasn't just men who were memorizing, but it was women who had memorized as well. That, these were from the Muhajireen. Then from the Ansar, you've got during the time of the Prophet itself, you've got Ubada ibn Samit, Mu'adh, Abu Halima, Mujamma ibn Jariyah, Fadala ibn Ubaid and Maslama ibn Mukhallad. Now these are not so well-known names, right? But um, this just tells you that um, these are people who are reported. There were other people who probably never told anybody about it, you know? So, for example, if in this local area we're to count the Hafiz of the Quran, I mean, there are hundreds. In just this local area, right? There are probably hundreds of Hafiz of the Quran just in my local area here in London, right? So imagine in Medina Munawwara. Now, not everybody's going to even tell anybody, you know, everybody that they've memorized the Quran. 
So that's why there were lots of people. Um, there's other there's other more detailed lists that have been prepared. Imam Al-Zahabi uh, has added a number of other people as well. And we, our job here is not to try to determine every single one of them. They'll have their benefit, inshallah, on the Day of Judgment. But it's basically to show you that there were enough Sahaba who had memorized the entire Quran at that time for that first generation to have a tawatur, to have such widespread uh, memorization of it that they could never have, you know, it wasn't just three of them or four of them who memorized it and they could like just agree that, hey, we'll make this verse up, nobody say anything. It was, they could never collude together. There was just hundreds of these people who had, you know, who had uh, memorized the Quran at that time and then they obviously passed it on and on and on and that's how it was. That's why Abul Khair ibn al-Jazri, rahimahullah, he says, Imam Abul Khair ibn al-Jazri, he says that the reliance on the transmission of the Quran you know, on memory in the hearts, memory from heart to heart, and not just upon written works, right, is going to be some very unique feature of this ummah. That's a unique feature of this ummah, right? And, uh, you know, this is something which is a unique feature that was foretold by the previous prophets. So, for example, you've got a discussion that's mentioned in one of the old scriptures that the description of the Sahaba were anaji or the Muslim Ummah is anaji luhum fi sudurihim. Their evangels, which means their divine scriptures, are going to be in their hearts. Right? Their divine scriptures are going to be in their hearts. So, Subhanallah, that's this Ummah. Right? And there are, mashallah, many families. You know, there's one family that I know that every single boy. Right in that generation, and I think it's uh, five, uh, seven, seven um, of the first generation. They've got children. Like each of them had three, four children. Right, every single child in that generation is a hafiz of the Quran. Right, from my wife's family, essentially every single cousin brother of hers is a hafiz of the Quran, and I don't know what the number is, but every single bro every single cousin brother, first cousin, uh, uh, in terms of male. They're all hafiz of the Qur'an. Right? So, mashallah, that's anajiluhum fi sudurihim. Their scriptures are in their hearts. And that's why there's another hadith, uh, hadith al-Qudsi actually, which Imam Muslim has transmitted. It says, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that I'm going to test you and I'm going to test by you. And I'm going to reveal to you a book which um, uh, no water will be able to efface. And you will recite it um, uh, you, you will recite it. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has said, وَلَقَدْ يَسَّرْنَا الْقُرْآنَ لِلذِّكْرِ فَهَلْ مِنْ مُدَّكِرٍ We have facilitated the Qur'an for remembrance, for reminders, for, me for, for memorization. Is there anybody to do so? Is there anybody to take this up? So that's where, you go, that's, where you, that's, where, that's what you have. Now, what we're going to discuss now is move on to the second part of this topic, which is how did the Qur'an, how did the Qur'an uh, become written how was it preserved in the written form because I said at the beginning the Quran was written uh, was preserved both in the oral form and the written form right the Quran was preserved in both forms right both in the written form and in the memorization you know in, in memory as well so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says inna nahnazzalna dhikra wa inna lahu lahafidun we are the ones who have revealed this reminder and we are going to protect it so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala set up the whole 
system for us. Now, you know, the next part of this discussion, it's covered very well in this book as well, right? Um, but it's really interesting, the painstaking work, the difficulties that they undertook to make sure that the Qur'an is exactly the way that we have it, right? And I think what we'll do is that we'll split this up into three sections. We may not be, we probably won't be able to cover all the sections, uh, or, sorry, not the sections, but all the different um, levels of this. But you can, you can split this up into three um, stages. We'll discuss the first stage and then we'll move on to the second and third stage. The initial collection of the Quran in, and preservation in a written form was that every time the Prophet ﷺ would receive a revelation, verses or um, uh, a surah or whatever it was, he would immediately contact one of the scribes, those people who would know, the few people that knew how to read or write. He had a few on board and he would immediately call them and he would dictate the Quran to them and they would write it. They would write it. What would they write it on? There was not much paper in those days. They would, um, they would write it on different things that they could. I mean, they had some kind of maybe crude ink, you know, rudimentary way of making that. And so that that's the way that that that's the way they would do it. They used to you they used to write on pieces of leather, riqa, right? Pieces of leather. Number two on lichaf, which basically means flat stones. Aktaf, which could be shoulder bones of animals. And usub, which means strim, uh, stripped palm branches. If you ever looked at a palm branch, uh, it, it, it kind of expands. So the stripped of its leaves and uh, it would make a really nice surface. The, I actually had a good opportunity to observe the palm tree very closely uh, when I was in October, November, when I was in uh, Darlun Karachi, in Mufti Taqi Sab's place in, in Karachi, in Pakistan. And they've got, outside his house, I used to have to wait there for him. So they've got quite a few palm trees there. And it's really interesting. The palm fiber, uh, the, the, the various different things on a palm tree, it makes it a very, very useful um, a, a, a tree. So those were the things on pieces of leather, on flat stone, um, uh, planks of wood, um, shoulder blades, and also stripped palm branches. How many people did the Prophet ﷺ have in his team that you know he could invite? So there are names of about 25 scribes that he had, right? Now we have the names are approximately 25, but it's possible that there were actually more than that. But these are again, I mean, because it wasn't like somebody was writing this history at the time saying, okay, make sure everybody the Prophet ﷺ was told, let's jot it down, and there were people doing that. So that's why others have taken it to beyond 40 as well, right? So probably more than 40 people, uh, as some people have researched this. Well, actually, the point is that the Prophet ﷺ used to only allow these people to write the Qur'an and nobody else, right? That is what the initial understanding, unless they had another reason for writing the Qur'an, then they could. But he tried to keep it very restricted so that there would be no confusion that somebody say, hey, I've got a piece of the Qur'an and it would be something else, right? That's why there's a Sahih Hadith in, uh, in Muslim, which the Prophet ﷺ said, لا تكتبوا عني شيئاً إلا القرآن Don't write anything from me except the Qur'an. So they weren't allowed to write the Hadith or anything else. Right? They would have to memorize that. They were only allowed to write the Qur'an so that there would be nothing mixed up. Because remember, there was no written tradition at that time. So whatever was written, 
the, Allah, uh, the Prophet wanted it to be just the Qur'an so that it would be unique and that is what it would be. And the Prophet said, whoever does write from me anything else, he should get rid of it. However, we do have reports where Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, Abdullah ibn Amr ibn As did, were allowed to even write hadith. Okay, there is some discussion about that, but this was a general prohibition in the beginning. But it looks like some permission was given to write other things later as well. Imam Hakim uh, An-Nishapuri, he mentions uh, in his collection of hadith, uh, with a very strong chain from Anas anhu that once we were with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam and we used to compile the Quran from the various different leather pieces that were there. So Anas was a servant of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He served him for 10 years in that entire Medinan period. So he was very close to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So he said that you know when these parchments would be written and so on he would actually put it together. Um, and that's what they did. Because these scribes, there were you know, over 40 scribes or so, and the Prophet would call them, they were not always preserved with the Prophet They wouldn't just write and leave it with the Prophet The Prophet had a very small place. Some parts were left with the Prophet others, the scribes, had themselves. So these scribes, Zayd ibn Thabit and others, Khuzayma uh, al-Ansari, and so on, they would have their own, they would have their own pieces, right? So... Ubay ibn Ka'ab radiallahu anhu, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, and others, they compile the Quran like that. Right? Now, as I said, initially there seemed to be a prohibition, but it looks like uh, there were allowance for people to, uh, to, to compile Qurans. You know, so if they memorized it, they could write it down for themselves. It would not be an official copy you know, that the Prophet had maybe himself you know, so there were those scribes who the Prophet had dictated to, right, in front of others. They were the ones who, you know, had the official copy, you could say, right, the so-called so uh, um, non-formal official copy or the non-official copy, however you want to say it. And then there were others who'd memorize it and then they had written the Quran. Some people had done that as well. Now, why do we know that, you see, the one hadith which says that don't write anything from me but the Quran and then the prohibition for others and so on. What's going on here is that you understand that there were quite a few people who wrote the Qur'an and you understand that from some other hadith. Those hadith are that the Prophet ﷺ said in a hadith that Imam Bukhari and Muslim have both uh, reported that the Prophet ﷺ prohibited that people travel with the Qur'an to the enemy lands. Now what does that mean? If they just had it uh, in their hearts that means they couldn't go there. That is what it would mean. So obviously that's not what it would mean. And then what's the problem with going into enemy lands with the Quran in your heart? So I think the, 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 what the ulama have explained that what this basically means is that don't go with written parchments of the Quran. Don't go with written parchments of the Quran in enemy lands because if they prevail over you, they're going to, dis, uh, they're going to disrespect the Quran if they take the Quranic sheets from you. So that's one evidence. The other thing, there's a hadith in Muslim where the Prophet ﷺ said, la So this is the hadith actually. Don't travel with the copies of the Quran because I don't feel secure that maybe the enemies will get their hands on it and then disrespect it. Um, likewise, there's a hadith in Bukhari saying something similar. And there's another hadith when the Prophet ﷺ wrote his letter to Amr ibn Hazm. He said, the one of the directions he gave is that nobody 
impure should touch the Quran. So if you don't have wudu, la yamasul Quran illa tahir. Imam Malik has transmitted this, Imam Nasai and Ibn Hibban. So this is the hadith that you get the impermissibility of touching the Quran without wudu. So you're not allowed to touch Quran without, and you get it this from this hadith. Now, if the Quran was in the heart, I mean, what does it mean that you can't touch the Quran without wudu? So obviously, this refers to the this obviously refers to written copies of the Quran, and there's numerous others as well. And there's the story of Uthman, uh, sorry, Umar radiAllahu anhu when he set out that day to kill the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, and then he was actually um, you can say sidetracked. To, uh, to, to be sent to his brother-in-law, his sister's house. And when he got there, they were actually reading from, from bits of parchment and they hid it. And then when he insisted that they show it to him, he showed, he, they showed it to him. So that also shows that there were other written copies of the Quran as well. People did write it, right? So that prohibition wasn't absolute that is related in the Hadith. So essentially what's going on is that there's a lot of scribal activity going on in Medina Munawwara. You know, there's some people who know how to write, others are maybe writing for them and so on. And that shows two things. Number one, that the Quran was definitely being memorized. We've just proved, we've just shown that. We've also shown that it was also being written. However, they were, they were not, you know, it may have not been written fully like all in one place because it was over 23 years that bit by bit and maybe they didn't write everything that was revealed until then because different people would have memorized some parts of it and written some parts of it and so on and so forth. So now let's move on to the first uh, that, that you can call one of the first stages. Now let's move on to the next stage and this is when the Prophet ﷺ departs this world. Revelation has now stopped. Okay. There's going to be no more wahi. The Prophet ﷺ has departed this world. That means the Quran is now fully intact and complete over the 23 years. Now there can be no change. So one of the reasons why the Quran was not ever compiled together, one of the wisdoms rather, of why the Quran was not compiled together during the Prophet's life is because it was an ongoing process. Why was it written on loose sheets, loose parchments, separate pieces? Why? Because... Number one, they didn't have, you know, the, the, the nice paper that you have these days, right? So thin. In fact, um, if you look at the Quran that was written, that's in the Tashkent library, it's about this thick, right? It's about this thick. And that is, you know, in written on some kind of parchment or leather or whatever it is. And there are others. And if it was written on bone and on palm branches and everything, I mean, we're talking about... Subhanallah. And then if you look at some of the old copies, the, the, the writing wasn't so small. They, 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 on one, on one parchment, they would actually just have, um, if I can find you a picture, they would actually just have very few lines on there. For example, look at this one here. This is a Mus'haf from the second century in Yemen, in a museum in Yemen. And, and if you look at that one there, right, the one there at the top, it's... Uh, Right. If you look at that one, right at the top, that is not much, right? Writing on there, and to be honest, I think that is probably maybe one line of our Medinan Mus'haf, the way it's extended and everything is one line of the Medinan Mus'haf. So these were huge bits, you know, because uh, paleography, the the way of writing and so on, had not fully developed at that time as well to what it is right now, right? Because remember, it was still a very oral tradition at the time. So people had different bits written. Now, one of the reasons why the Quran was never compiled together in one book form is because at that time, 
the Quran was still a work in progress. It was still being coming down. Verses could be abrogated, changed, added to, you know, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because I, I gave you one example of غَيْرُ أُولِدْدَرَ Just those words coming down separately and being inserted, you know, from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So it was easier to have it on sheets where they could make the amendations, where they could just add it on there. If it was a whole compiled book, it would be difficult to keep changing. And also the order... You know, the Prophet ﷺ was deciding its order in different places as well. So all the surahs were maybe not even complete yet at that point. So that's why it was never done. However, now what happens is we come to Abu Bakr as-Siddiq radiallahu anhu's time. And Imam Bukhari relates this hadith, which I'm going to relate to you today. And then after that, we'll have to have the rest of the discussion tomorrow. Zayd ibn Thabit radiallahu anhu is the narrator of this hadith of Bukhari. And he says that once Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu called for me, after the, the major murder that took place uh, uh, by the people of Yamama, right? Umar radiallahu and when I got there, Umar radiallahu anhu was there. And Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said that, look, Umar radiallahu came to me and he said to, him, he said to me that this Ahlu Yamama, they're the ones who killed a number of the Qurra, right? So I think 70 Qurra were killed at that time, which is a huge number, right? Which is a huge number. So Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu, who's the Khalif of the time, he says, Umar radiallahu anhu has approached me and he's telling me that during this massacre, right, it's essentially created like a day of judgment for all the Qurra of the Quran, like it's murdered so many, right? And I'm, and I'm now fearful, he says, that, uh, so Umar radiallahu anhu had come to Abu Bakr and said that he is fearful that, uh, you know, we have Qurra going to many places and if, Qurra, and in fact, they, the Qurra used to be at the forefront of the battles. So if these Quran memorizers and reciters are killed, then we're going to lose a lot of the, our very special people. So Umar tells the Abu Bakr, anhu, you need to compile the Quran together. You need to put all of these disparate pages and sheets and parchments that people, you know, that the scribes have in the different places. We need to bring it all together and make an autograph copy, make this, you know, authoritative copy in one place so that, okay, you know, if people do die, at least we've got something now in writing that is attested to by, you know, uh, many, many people. So th this is what's going on. He says that uh, Abu Bakr Sadiya radiallahu anhu then said that how can you do something that the Prophet did not do? That was his first, uh, his first response. Umar says, Hada wallahi khayr. No, this is something by Allah. This is really important and good for us to do it. This is a virtuous thing. And Umar radiallahu anhu then told Zayd ibn Thabit anhu that Umar kept persisting and insisting on this and convincing me until Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened up my heart for this. So I then completely understood his vision and his perspective. So Zayd radiallahu anhu, now they're telling this to Zayd. So Umar radiallahu anhu is there. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu is telling all of this story to Zayd. Zayd radiallahu anhu says, then Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu said that, look, you are a young man, right? Zayd radiallahu anhu was a young man. You're very intelligent. And we have no suspicion about you. We, you know, we have no doubt about you. We fully trust you, right? In this regard. And you are one of the scribes of the Prophet So it looks like Zayd ibn Thabit was a very prominent scribe of the Prophet He was young at the time as well, and he was known for his diligence. What I want you to do, he said, is Now, I want you to go and find all the authoritative copies that were written in the time of the Prophet meaning the parchments, the bones, whatever it is, and I want you to gather them together. 
See, that's something which not happened. And now this was happening, right? So this is the first gathering of the Quran that's been mentioned here. Zayd radiallahu anhu said, Wallahi, by Allah, if he told me to move a mountain, right? One of the mountains, that would have been easier for me, right? Then what he's telling me to do to gather the Quran together like that, right? So first I challenged him, he said. He said, I said, how can you do something again, which the Prophet ﷺ had not done? So Abu Bakr now is defending the position. He says, no, this is the thing to do. And Abu Bakr kept persisting with me as well until finally Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala also opened up my heart and convinced me about this as well. Just as Umar had been able to do for Abu Bakr Siddiq. So I went out and I started looking for the Quran and I gathered it from the various different uh, leaves and the parchments and all the other thing and from the hearts of men as well and th- this is the, this is just a synopsis he's providing the detail will come later but this is just a synopsis he says eventually it took a while right it took a while i think uh, you know nearly a year or something it took quite a while and he says i gathered it all together and he says i still remember the last verse that i received right of surah at not the last verse but the final you know there was just something that was missing i just couldn't find it with everybody in in with the criteria see lots of people had written but he had a special criteria which we will discuss soon he had a special criteria he would only accept that which could be witnessed to have been written in front of the prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam by at least two witnesses this was done in the masjid there was a public announcement that was made for this that they wanted people to participate, anybody who had any part of the Quran, you know, like maybe it was left to them by their father who was a scribe or something like that. They had to bring it in, bring two witnesses to prove that this was written in front of the Prophet And he said there was one, uh, one verse we couldn't find. I mean, he had memorized it. He knew what the verse was. But this just shows the scrutiny and the diligence that we couldn't find a, 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 a authoritative written version of that work, uh, of that ayah of Surah At-Tawbah. Until we found it by Abu Khuzayma al-Ansari radiallahu anhu. And I couldn't find it with anybody else. And that is the verse, لَقَدْ جَاءَكُمْ رَسُولٌ مِّنْ أَنفُسِكُمْ عَزِيزٌ عَلَيْهِ مَا عَنِتُّمْ Until the end of Surah Al-Bara'ah. That verse he found with uh, Abu Khuzayma al-Ansari. That just shows you that they were not willing to accept it from just anybody, but the authoritative forms. Now, then he mentions that all of these parchments that we had collected together, which must have been quite a bundle, right? You know, because it was written on different things. It remained with Abu Bakr Siddiq. That was the archetype. That was, you can say, the main authoritative, you know, gathering of all the verses in the Quran until Abu Bakr Siddiq who passed away. Then after that, it remained with Umar who when he became the Khalifa for nine, ten years, it remained with him. Then when Umar who passed away, his daughter Hafsa radiallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, it stayed with her, until when we get to the, the the next stage, when there was a need again to bring these out and then to make copies, which will be inshallah discussing with you tomorrow. So that is what happened. It remained with the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam after Umar and during Uthman radiallahu anha's time until Uthman radiallahu anha asked for it. He had him copied and then he gave him back to Hafsarin. So that was um, uh, the, the first stage of all of this. And inshallah, we will carry on with this discussion inshallah tomorrow. It's very interesting to eventually figure out. Then it will move on to, you know, we've been discussing the seven qiraat and so on. So what we'll actually be also discussing is how exactly, you know, what were the unique features 
getting more into detail about how Uthman al-Islam's Quran was written, this Quran that he wrote eventually and why he wrote it. We'll inshallah discuss that in detail. Jazakallah khair. May Allah bless you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Jazakallah khair for listening. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala uh, bless you. And if you're finding this useful, you know, um, uh, as they say, do that like button and subscribe button and forward it on to others. Jazakallah khair and assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.